I'm going to read the whole chapter, but we're only going to make it to verse 5 today. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name, that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear its stones, lift up a signal for the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with them and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Amen. It's the easiest question I could ever have asked. Well, God has spoken to us, right? God has spoken to us. He has made himself known to us. He has revealed the truth, the creator of the heavens and the earth. The ones who, one who formed everything out of nothing. The one who is supreme in wisdom. The all-knowing, the all-sovereign God has given us everything we need to know about life and godliness. Where else would you go? Imagine if we didn't go to God's word as the lens through which we understand all of life. Imagine if we went anywhere else to try to understand life. That would be unbelievable and almost unfathomable. But what is truly amazing is how many professing believers, sadly today, don't evaluate life based on God's word, but on other things. It is not uncommon to find ourselves or those around us evaluating life based on our opinions, on our feelings, on the news, even Fox News, right? Or Facebook. There's a place to go, right? <laughs> Facebook. Facebook. 
when we don't go to God's word to evaluate life, it is always a detriment to our lives. For instance, if you were to evaluate the condition of the unbelieving world based on appearance or your opinion, what would you come up with? Just think this, just uh, entertain me for a second. What would you come up with without God's word if you were to look around you and try to make sense of the unbelieving world? You would think that God doesn't care very much about unbelief and disobedience and rebellion. The unbelieving world appears to be doing okay in many ways, doesn't it? If you look around you, things just continue as they were. Tomorrow will just continue as it has today, and so for the next day, and for the next day. Clearly, God is, doesn't really care that much, or wouldn't he do something? And, and I mean, there are some very nice and giving and religious people out there. Surely God at the least tolerates such unbelieving people. But what does God's word say? What does God say about the unbelieving world? Well, God says the unbelieving world is at odds with him, and he is at odds with the unbelieving world. The, the world is at enmity with God. There is a war between God and the world. God is angry at the world, and the world is angry at God. And in fact, the call to repentance is not just a request. It's a command. And every time the world does not repent, it is in active rebellion against God. The Bible says God commands everyone everywhere to repent. That is a command. And in, and in we read in, in John, it says, those who do not believe, the next phrase is, those who do not obey are under his wrath. So believe and obedience are one and the same thing. We looked at the wrath of God towards an unbelieving world from chapters 1 of Isaiah, a little exaggeration, but somewhat true, from chapter 1 of Isaiah to chapter 39. My wife was wondering, is this ever going to end? <laughs> I was wondering, this is a lot. <laughs> but we needed to hear that. If you missed that, if you missed that, you are not alive. <laughs> you might have been here physically, but you weren't here in reality <laughs> for those 39 chapters. What appears like unconcern is really God's patient love. He offers salvation. That's love. That's the love of God. And he gives us food. He gives us rain from heaven. He gives us the next moment. He keeps our hearts beating. And that is grace and mercy and love to those who remain under his wrath. So how does faith respond? How does faith respond to this? If you care about the world, if you understand the world from a biblical perspective, what are you going to do? You're going to speak the gospel, the words of life to a dying world. You're going to give the gospel. You're going to speak it. 
You're going to proclaim the truth that God commands everyone everywhere to repent and to turn from their sin. If you don't respond this way, then I have to say that you are either evaluating the world based on appearance of things, or your opinion, or Facebook, or something other than the world, or you just don't care. Let's say, on the other hand, you are to evaluate the condition of believers based on the appearance of things. What would you come up with? Let's do the same thing, but in light of the believing world. It doesn't appear like God is really committed to believers, does it? They have the same tragedies, even worse sometimes than the world around them. Not only that, but they don't always seem to deserve his love much more than unbelievers. Isn't that true? Believers can do some of the most rotten things. <laughs> Remember King David? But what does God say that he thinks of those who believe and trust in him? What does God say that he thinks towards such people? God's word says he delights in his people. God's word says he even rejoices over them. Can we say that? <laughs> Not only that, but he says he is absolutely committed to the good of his people. And you wouldn't know this if it wasn't for his word speaking the truth to our lives. So my question is, how does faith respond to this? What is the response of faith? And the answer is joy. The answer is hope. The answer is fearlessness. The answer is confident expectation in the promises of God. And if we don't feel it, and we can't even imagine it's true, then we pray. Faith prays and says, God, make it known to my heart. By the way, that is faith. If you read it and you say, this doesn't seem to be true, faith says, God, help me to understand it. Make it clear to me. Sometimes God wants us to be in that place. If you respond this way, then you're evaluating yourself based not on the appearance of things, not on your opinion, but on God's word. In this passage, God is communicating to us what he thinks of his church. God wants us to understand how he views us. And we need to understand what God thinks of us. And one of the ways we understand what God thinks of us is by understanding his purposes for us. And that's what this passage is all about. What is God's purpose for us? And in his purpose, we're going to see exactly what God thinks of us and how much God loves us. And by the way, we've spent a few weeks on this, but after chapters 1 through 39, I don't think a few weeks is too much. I think we can spend a few more weeks on this if we wanted to. So I want to begin by asking, who is the speaker of verse 1? Who is the I that is telling us what he is committed to. He's committed to doing something until God's purpose is fulfilled in Zion. And there are a few different possibilities here. Some people say that the answer is the prophet Isaiah. 
Um, other people say it's God, and other people say it's the Messiah. And um, my response to that is, we don't exactly know, and it really doesn't matter. Because ultimately, whoever is the one speaking these words, they are the words of God. They are speaking God's word to us, and what God intends for us to understand. This is God's passion, and that's the point that we need to understand. And so this passage is about communicating God's loving concern for a specific group of people called Zion. So the question is, who is this Zion? Who is this Zion that God is expressing his intention, his purpose, and his love for? And Zion could either be an ethnic people of Israel, or it could be the believing remnant who is also the church. And the language, if you look throughout these verses, it is not at all unclear. It is absolutely clear who is he speaking of. He is not talking about ethnic Israel. He's talking about the believing remnant, the people of God, the church. And he uses language as righteousness to refer to salvation. We are not talking about an ethnic people. We're talking about a spiritual people. We're talking about a salvation that comes from God, that belongs to his people, his remnant, his church. And so you might ask, why does it even matter? Why do we need to understand who he's speaking to? And the answer is because it matters as much as it would if you were reading someone else's mail. You ever read someone else's mail and you think, oh, that's nice, but it's not for me, <laughs> right? Well, this is not someone else's mail. This is your mail. If you're a believer, this is written to you. And you're not a secondary application. You're a primary application. This is for you, the church. And so what it says about Zion, it is saying directly to you today, if you're a believer. So what is God committed to doing for Zion? We are told what he's committed to doing in verse 1. And listen to these words. God's purpose is to make her righteousness go forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. In other words, God is saying, I am committed to her complete and absolute salvation. God is committed to his people's absolute good. There is no gooder than this. I know it's not a word, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> there is nothing gooder, nothing better than what God wants for his people. And God doesn't just want this. He is committed to achieving this purpose that he's saying here. Righteousness and salvation are used interchangeably. And righteousness indicates the type of salvation. It is a salvation that you need, not a physical salvation alone, not merely some physical deliverance from Babylonian captivity. This is a spiritual deliverance, a deliverance unto righteousness. And by the way, that is what you need more than anything, is the righteousness of God. That is your greatest problem in life. And it refers to the entirety of your salvation. See, righteousness here refers to reflecting the character of God perfectly with your life. 
And that is exactly what we are created to do, to reflect the very character of God. And that is what it means to be saved. It's God saving you from the most terrible condition of his wrath, based on and for his own righteousness. God not only gives you his righteousness on your account, and think about this. Think about the righteousness of God in your salvation. Not only does God impart his righteousness to your account, not only does he declare you righteous, and that's what we call justification, isn't it? When we are declared righteous as in a court of law, where God looks at you as if you had committed the righteousness of Christ. And that's what it means to be saved, to be justified. But he is also committed to making you righteous. And ultimately to making you glorified, right? And so there's justification, declaring you righteous. There's um, uh, sanctification, where you are made righteous to reflect his glory. And then there's glorification that awaits every one of his people. And that God is working towards. And then when the total number of the elect are saved, and they have received their glorified bodies then you can say in one sense that your salvation is complete when you've experienced the fullness of it. And that's what God is committed to here. And the result, when your salvation is complete, is that you'll be like a burning torch. What does a torch do? If you had a torch, what would be its purpose and its function? And the answer is to shine forth, right? To be blazing bright in such a way that it would radiate, and in this case, radiate the glory of God in such a way that it, that it is visible and concrete and not subjective, but objective. This is a reality. This is a real thing that God is doing here. God's purpose is that we would shine forth the glory of his righteous character, and he will make it happen. And also torches, a torch could be a reference to being zealous and passionate for God, just as he is zealous, and in the same ways that he is zealous and passionate for as well. And a couple different biblical stories come to mind, don't they, don't they when you think of shining forth? I think of Moses when he came into the presence of, of the Lord, and afterwards he had to put a veil over his face because he was shining so brightly that people couldn't look at him. It's in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 13 through 18. He was shining so brightly from being in the presence of the Lord that they couldn't even look at him. They had to put a veil over his face. That's what it means to shine forth. Or John the Baptist, who is described similarly in John 5, verse 35. And Jesus describes him this way. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, right? So this means that God's saving work will never remain merely an internal change. It will be visible and unmistakable what God has done and what he's doing, and he is committed to changing us in a tangible, invisible way, in such a way that it will be plain to see, torch-like invisibility. 
Is this good news? Is God committed to your good? Is there possibly any greater news we could hear this morning? I mean, think about it. Think about anything you could ever hear this morning. The best news you could possibly hear. This is infinitely greater. And it comes from the very mouth of God. There is absolutely nothing in this world to not be hopeful about. (laughs) Your future is bright, church. It could not be brighter. So how committed is God to accomplish this purpose for his people? Well, God uh, communicates his, his commitment to perfecting his bride in verse 1. God says he will not be silent, he will not be quiet until she is perfected. And throughout the Old Testament, you could often hear God's people praying, right? And saying, why are you silent, O God? Why are you quiet? And they're not saying that God is not literally saying something, although that's part of it. But God was not acting the way that they expected him to act. And they wanted God to come and save them and deliver them. And bring them to salvation. Psalm 35, 22 through 23 is such an example. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and arouse yourself for my vindication. For my cause, my God and my Lord. Therefore, God is not just saying simply that he's not going to to be silent in the sense of not saying anything. He's saying, I am not going to stop acting. Until my salvation is accomplished. Until my purposes are fulfilled. He's simply saying, I am committed to this task. And I will not rest until it's complete. In fact, that's one way you could think about it. It's kind of like us saying, I won't rest until I'm done with this. God is saying, I will not rest until my purposes are complete. Until my people are perfectly glorified. Paul said, In a similar way, in Philippians 1, verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is determined to make you torch-like and for his glory to shine through you in all its glorious perfection. So the question is, what will this look like? What will it look like for God to do this? And that's what verses 2 through 5 show to us. God expounds on his purpose and what it looks like to us for his people. What is God committed to doing for his people? Well, first, God will make her glory resplendent to the nations. Verse 2, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. God will make it so plain and so clear and so magnificent that the nations will be blinded by the glory of God that shines through his people. They will not be able to ignore it. It will be obvious to them. Even the kings, the greatest of the earth, who stand somewhat aloof from all others, right? Even they will not be able to deny it. Even they will see the glory that shines through his people. And so sometimes we look at the church today and we say, ah, that's not happening. (laughs) That's impossible. What in the world? This couldn't happen. 
But can I tell you, God's purposes are being fulfilled for his church even today. God's purposes are not failing. Now, that doesn't mean we lay back and sit still and do nothing. That means we jump to action and we become a part of what God is doing. Jesus said this, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that is true even of today. Nothing can stop God's purposes, and his church will be victorious. And even today, it is victorious, even though we cannot see it all the time. It says here that God will also give her a new name. It says, and you shall be called a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. In the Bible, um, I'm sure you've realized this, but they don't give people names because they sound good, right? <laughs> right? I mean, it's obvious they don't care about how they sound, right, when you read them, because they don't sound good at all, oftentimes. But they would name people because they meant something, because they had a significant meaning to them. And so Isaac, for instance, means what? Isaac means laughter. I'm not sure exactly if that is that significant, unless you understand why they named Isaac laughter. Remember, God gave the promise, and Sarah laughed, <laughs> right? And God, almost in irony, says, you're naming him Isaac. <laughs> to give someone a new name meant to give someone a new status, a new identity, and a new character. To change someone's name means, means that a dramatic, incredible change has taken place. We see this with Abram being named Abraham, meaning father of a vast multitude. Right? What a significant change, God was saying. It makes no sense to the world, but God was saying, I am going to do an incredible work that you will be given a new name. Your identity will be changed. You have a totally new character. We see this with Jacob, the heel catcher named Israel, Simon named Peter. Remember, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. God was going to transform Peter so that his name would embody the message that would transform the church. Isn't this somewhat similar to what a wife does when she gets married? She takes on a new name, I don't know if you've ever thought of the significance of that. You know, it's not some male chauvinist way of doing things. <laughs> it really is symbolic, and it's really important. It's an important symbol. Symbolic of what happens when we come to Christ. That we take on his name, don't we? And we want to take on his name. Because we belong to him. In Revelation 2, verse 17, we see that God is going to give his people a new name. Listen to this. Meaning that we belong to him and we have a new identity. To the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. It is not until verses 4 through 5 in these verses that we are told what this new name is. And there are two names that she has given. Listen to these Two names. My delight is in her, that's the first name, and she shall be married. She'll be changed from forsaken to delighted in. She'll be changed from desolate to married. God is going to do 
an incredible change, a transformation, and give his people a new identity. Everything has changed for God's people. Nothing is the same. Everything is new. Third, we see that God will make her a crown of beauty in his hand. Verse 3. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, in a royal diadem in the hand of God. Now, God is not saying that the crown is going to be on his head as if they have authority, right? Rather, God is picturing his church as a treasured crown of beauty in his hand. In the hand, this treasure, this crown of beauty is being kept and guarded and upheld by Christ who sees it as a most precious treasure. It's beautiful, it's his precious possession, it's valuable, it is honored, it is delighted in, it is cherished in. And that is you, church. Is that even, does that even make sense to us? That God would think of us that way? This is similar to Proverbs 12 verse 4, where a good wife is a crown to her husband. Or Philippians 4 verse 1 and 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19, where Paul calls the church his crown of rejoicing. Similarly, God holds his church as a trophy in his hand that is precious to him. What do you do with such possessions that are treasured? What do you do with them? You guard them. You protect them. And at all costs, right? And Jesus said this in John 10, verse 28. No one can snatch you out of my Father's hands. That's what he's saying, right? He's saying you are protected. You are guarded. You are precious. You are valuable to me. God is not begrudgingly devoting himself to you. God is not saying, just like that family member, extended family member, that you are forced to love and that's hard for you to love. God is not treating you that way, begrudgingly. God delights in you. God, fourthly, will delight in her as a groom delights in his bride. Verses 4 through 5. Incredible, incredible words. One of the ways God depicts his people who are in sin in his relationship to his sin-ridden people is that of a husband deserting his wife. And throughout the Old Testament, you will see that God depicts his people and his judgment on them in that way. She was corrupted and defiled and ugly because of her rebellion. And because of her rebellion, God says that he would abandon her. And he did abandon her. And there was nothing more shameful and hopeless as being deserted by your husband. And especially, especially a thousand times more if your husband is God. But now God says he will not only reconcile with his bride. It's not just saying he's going to reconcile with his bride here. God is saying he is going to do much, much more. He will enter a relationship with his newly married bride as if it was their honeymoon. God is more than simply reversing the situation. He is bringing the relationship to a marriage bliss. The sparks are flying There is deep intimacy. 
This is as passionate as it can get. God looks at his bride with honeymoon type of delight. It says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so God rejoices over you. How can we even put our minds around that? And so we wonder, of all the pictures he could have used, why would God reach for the picture of a newly married couple to communicate how he thinks of the church and his bride? Why would he, why would he reach for that picture? And the answer is because God's love is unfathomably great, inexpressibly great. It is a God-sized love that we could never comprehend. So God uses what we can comprehend. God takes the greatest picture we could have, the greatest one imaginable, and says, my love for you is unimaginably great. You can't picture it. You can't even imagine. But I will give you something that you can at least begin to comprehend. And the greatest passion and the greatest love that you know, that is known to man. And I will use that to try to convey to you how much I love you. That I rejoice over you in an inexpressible way, but in a way that you can possibly begin to understand. The fulfillment of this entire picture of verses 2 through 5 is without any doubt fulfilled in Revelation 21, verse 9 through 11. Listen to these words. John describes the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And one of the angels said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me in the spirit and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. We can see all of this in there, can't we? That is the consummation of God's purpose for his church and his people. So the question is, why is God right to be so committed to the glory of his people? I thought God was supposed to be committed to his own glory, right? How can he say he's committed to our glory in such passionate and unstoppable ways, like a torch shining forth? Well, the reason why he's so committed to Zion's glory is because it is really his glory. He is committed to his glory shining forth out of us. It is our, when, when we are in Christ, when he sees us, he sees Christ. He doesn't love you because of who you are in yourself. There's nothing compelling God to love you. and In fact, there's everything not compelling for God to love you. But when we are in Christ, he sees us as if we had committed the righteousness of Christ. He sees us as he sees his son. And therefore he delights in you. He really does delight in you because of his son. And then not only that, but God is committed to making you reflect his glory. God is committed to his glory reflecting out of you. And so God really does delight in you. He couldn't but delight in his people. God could just as much deny his own son as he could deny and not delight in his own people. Remember what Jesus, what was said, what the Father said of Jesus in Matthew 3, verse 17? With him I am well pleased. And so that's what God thinks of you if you're in Christ. This is why it is entirely right to say that God is going to save you and glorify you because he delights in you. And we see that in verse 4. 
for the Lord delights in you. It is entirely right for God to say he delights in his people. And it's entirely right for the church to say God delights in me. When will this purpose be fulfilled? And we're out of time, so I'm going to have to make this quick. When will his glory be fully revealed? And, and when will it shine perfectly and fully through us? Well, that is coming in a later day, isn't it? Every one of God's people will one day, when Christ returns, perfectly reflect his glory. Now, when this was written, what they were looking forward to in Isaiah's day was the coming of Christ. But for us, now that Christ has come, we are looking for the final return of Christ. Where, where his work will be consummated and we will be glorified and shine his glory. But we might ask, does this mean anything for us today? What does this mean for us? And the answer is, this is exactly how God sees us. This is how God looks at us today. God delights in us. God rejoices over his people. And so, because of our circumstances and our own failures, we often do not think that God really loves us. We look at ourselves, we look at our circumstances, and we wonder, how could God possibly love us? Or maybe we think God is begrudgingly loving us. Maybe he's obligated to love us. But what matters is how God says he views you. That's what matters. And God says, believer, that he delights in you and rejoices over you. As a groom delights in his bride. He delights in you to the greatest extent we could ever imagine. And I want to invite you to, to turn to Zechariah 3, verse 1 through 5, sometime today. And what you'll see in, in those verses is that Joshua, the high priest is standing next to the Lord, and Satan is on his other side. And Satan is accusing him and, and pointing to his dirty clothes. And the Lord says this, The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who, who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. The Lord is the one who can make us righteous before God. The Lord is the one who beautifies his bride. And this is the glorious good news of what Christ accomplishes for his people. You and I need the righteousness of Christ more than anything. And this is the only way that Christ can be pleased with anyone today. He must clothe you with the righteousness of Christ. And this requires repentance and faith in his finished work. Only then can you say with confidence, When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So how should the church respond to this good news of the righteousness of Christ? Rejoice. Be thankful. 
pray that God would make it clear to your mind and your heart the truths of how he views you and why he views you that way. And be confident, be bold, proclaim the good news of a great salvation that our Savior has bought. You have nothing to fear, but you have everything to gain. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for your grace and your love for us. I pray that you'd impress upon our minds the truths of your word. I pray that your people would rejoice. I pray that your people would be thankful today. I pray that your people would magnify your great and awesome name. I pray that we would say that our God is great. Lord, what else could we possibly say to think that our God rejoices over us and delights in us? is beyond my comprehension. But we thank you, Lord. We thank you for such a great salvation. And we give you all the praise and all the glory. And we also say, come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. We are longing for your return when we will be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.